Welcome to the John Chapman Show, where we talk about the path of a wealthy millennial, uncovering the truth about building and protecting your nest egg. Join us on this journey as we hear the stories of millennials and mentors alike to help you plan, manage, and protect your wealth. John is an employee of Worth Point LLC. All opinions expressed by John and podcast guests are solely their own opinion and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Worth Point. This podcast should not be relied upon for investment decisions and is for informational purposes only. Hey everyone, John Chapman here. Thanks for joining us for another episode of the podcast. Today we've got on my good friend, VJ Piawazdi. VJ works for SecFi, which is a company that helps with liquidity for folks going through um, liquidation or exercising of ISO incentive stock options. He's got an awesome background and shares some technical expertise. So anybody that's in the Silicon Valley or the uh, world of private companies that are looking for equity, ownership, and an exit in the future. This is for sure something that you can't miss. Uh, thanks again for joining us. Hope you enjoy. Hey, VJ Piawazdi, thanks for being on the podcast today. Hey, John, appreciate you having me. Happy to do this. This is cool. VJ and I go back. Uh, we met in college and we're in the same fraternity. And uh, now VJ has had a pretty stellar start to his career. So um, I'm really interested. I, I really want to spend time talking about your current job and some of your expertise. But I guess, BJ, tell me, where did you grow up and uh, what was money like in your house growing up? Absolutely. So I actually grew up in San Francisco. I know I'm probably one of the last few people who actually live in San Francisco that actually grew up here. It's <laughs> a tech boom and what's happened over the last 10 to 15 years. Yeah, you um, yeah grew I grew up, up in San Francisco. Yeah, it's very rare. It's uh, I I know what the New Yorkers feel like now. But whenever I find one that actually oh, lives funny. in New York, it's like, oh my god, a unicorn. Yeah. Um, anyways, <laughs> yeah, I grew up in the Sunset District of San Francisco, um, so probably on the west side of the city where you know most transplants San Francisco actually haven't been to. <laughs> but I grew up there. Uh, my father is actually he's an entrepreneur. He actually started his own business. He started a company called Borneo International Travel. Um, so. You know, being raised in Indonesia, I think one thing that always fascinated him was traveling, especially, um, you know, going all over the world. And uh, what he did was he came to the U.S. for school, uh, for college, um, and was supposed to go back to Indonesia to help run the family business, but decided to... I uh, decided he really liked him, so I decided to stay and start his own What's business. What's not to like? What um, was the what was yeah. the other business that his family was involved in? Yeah, so uh, it was actually a very interesting story. I think after World War II, uh, my family I was pretty much in exile in Indonesia. We kind of lost everything after the Japanese occupation. Um, and my family, my dad himself, grew up uh, pretty pretty poor. You know, he, he tells these stories all the time about how he grew up on ice cubes on the street uh, until his uncles were actually able to uh, kind of get us out of the, the gutter, if you will. Um, it started a chainsaw business, actually, essentially manufacturing equipment. So the family business was booming right when my dad hit his teenage years, and they sent him over to the U.S. with the wow. hopes of expanding to the U.S. Wow. Plan fell through, obviously, but uh, my dad ended up staying here, uh, starting his own gig, uh, which was a uh, essentially a travel agency. Um, he specializes in Southeast Asian travel. Started okay. it right around 1992, and uh, okay. still running today, surprisingly. <laughs> Oh, wow. Really? Well, I'm sure like the travel agency business has probably changed a lot with the internet. So like he's must oh, exactly. have adapted like quite a bit with that. 
Yeah, yes and no. I think obviously you could have done a, a little bit of a better job with the internet, but at some point, you know, you're not going to compete with Expedia. I think what helped him out, especially, is he had a, lo- a lot of loyal customers, uh, especially of the older generation, the people that you know still want to talk to someone they trust on the phone. Yeah, uh, help him out. And he gets a lot of connections to he has a lot of connections to the airlines and whatnot. So that's yeah. that's what that's what kept him afloat. But you know, it's, it yeah. is a dying business, and you know, he thinks he's sure. going to wrap it up for the next few years. So I'm sure you got to see like his work ethic and kind of learn from osmosis from him, but he, did he ever specifically talk about work or investing or entrepreneurship with you? Yeah. um, So definitely a lot about entrepreneurship. I think when it comes to the money aspect, um, he's always been pretty good with money, but I think maybe it's a cultural difference, you know, being from an Asian American background. Yeah, uh, money probably wasn't. It, we never really sat down. He said, you, you know, he never gave me the spiel of, you know, put one dollar in, get the interest, you know, like the typical spiel dads give. But you know, he's always. I, I think he he influenced me from a different angle in that his work ethic and what it takes to run a business. Because he's worked six days a week for the last you know what, third, thirty some years of his life. Uh, so it's quite uh, ever, quite interesting. Did, to see. did were you ever part of like? Did you ever do any part time work for him? A little bit. So I was actually, I'm still doing part-time work for him, unpaid, of course. <laughs> you know, when I when I was a kid, I, I would always help him out with a little thing, help him build. I built his first website. I think when I was a young teenager, and helped him adapt to the internet, the internet age. But whenever he has a few problems, whether it's financial or tax problems, ask me a few questions here and there. But what actually happened since I moved back to San Francisco is he's actually asked me to help build him a, a new website that's a lot more modern because his clients are complaining that uh, <laughs> his mobile friendly. Yeah. So, um, Super being a non-engineer, it's, it's kind of a fun project for me to actually have a reason for building a website. But yeah, uh, shout out fun. to First Base for helping facilitate that. <laughs> okay. Who was, you said First Base? Who Who is that company? Squarespace, Squarespace. So Squarespace, yeah, yeah sorry. Yeah. yeah. Shout out to Squarespace. Make it nice and easy for us non-engineers. And non-engineers. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. Well, that's interesting background. Did you have a job in high school or did you ever like learn budgeting on your own when you were growing up? Yeah, actually, kind of interesting story. So uh, I was always a kid. I think my dad, you know, given my background, my father's background, you know, he grew up from with pretty much nothing as a teenager. So I think he he's always wanted to instill that culture of hard work and, and get what you earn uh, type of deal. So I was always a kid growing up that you know all my friends had bigger allowances than me, maybe uh, more fun toys, better video games. Like <laughs> as a young teenager, I was uh, I was the guy always trying to find ways to make extra cash on the side. You know, uh, officially, unofficially, I remember I guess my first official or unofficial job rather was I got really good at this video game called Diablo Two, and my nerdy side coming out. And uh, <laughs> what I learned was that awesome. uh, what I learned was that yeah, people would actually pay money for items in that game to get better. So I realized that. And I also realized that there are people out there that are cheating and essentially running robots overnight to basically farm these items. And I found out how to do that and quickly set up a shop on PayPal and a PayPal account. And wow. actually, that was my first job, selling electronic <laughs> items. <laughs> my first job with entrepreneurship. And then from there, you know, I had various gigs. I did uh, try to resell a few things on eBay, things like that. You know, as the internet internet age came up at that point, it was very interesting. Kind of new wow. ways to try to 
I know soup like virtually nothing about the video game world and what is it called esports i guess it's like the biggest booming sector within i guess the quote-unquote sports world yeah you were early Um, on that no it's quite amazing i was uh you know i I don't really play video games anymore and i haven't since probably high school but you know i just got a notification on my app yesterday from espn or the athletic or one of the sports sites i went to and it was like uh, the first female has been drafted to the the Golden State Warriors esports teams. I'm like, what? there's an esports team, you know? <laughs> it's quite amazing. Yeah, so there's actually uh, the Golden State Warriors basketball team has some sort of like minor league esports team, which is quite amazing. That's amazing. I'd love to be paid to play play video games. Maybe I was actually <laughs> onto something when I was a kid. Yeah, maybe that's super funny. <laughs> Well, I guess, okay, so we, let's fast forward. Uh, let's go up to college. So tell us about where you went to school. What did you study while you were there? Yeah, so I actually went to the University of Washington uh, up in Seattle. I love, love the Huskies. Go dogs. I uh, went there for four years of my undergrad and stayed for another year for my master's. She came in, came into came in school thinking I was going to be a computer engineer. Uh, that's kind of what interested me. But, you know, for one reason or another, maybe part of it was hating calculus. The other part of it was most of my friends were going into business. Uh, I just just, uh, tried to take a few business classes and then uh, applied for business school, got in. I took took an accounting class. And accounting was one of those courses where it doesn't sound cool, but a lot of my friends were actually going into it. And I quickly found out that, you know, it was good paying jobs out of college uh, or in public accounting. Uh, and I was somehow good at it. It kind of just clicked for me. Uh, so <laughs> that's great. <laughs> that's guy kind of fell on my lap. And then shortly after that, I took a tax class with uh, Bill Ressler. Um, and for some of you who are at UW, yeah, probably know him as the guy who walked around and wet all day at the, at the Foster <laughs> School of Business. But uh, probably the most influential person in my career. Uh, I took mm. a tax class with him. He was like a tax just a tax god. <laughs> he, yeah, yeah. he made tax somehow fun and interesting. And I like so it. Awesome. And not a lot of people do. And I think right then and there, I was like, I'm screwed. You know, I'm going to be a tax accountant. <laughs> so, yeah I, I did that i did that uh, i majored in business with a focus in accounting uh, applied okay. for bills master's in tax class uh, had probably the most five fun five years of my life uh, while you know getting a degree so yes. couldn't really complain about that wow you can't complain for everybody that's bitching about the you know higher education or like the cost of college you you got you you maximized it from being able to find something that you were interested in and then good at so what yes absolutely so the the one year that you did afterwards is that for the cpa designation or how did that come about yeah, yeah. Actually, I think, uh, I think nowadays, back then, it didn't, re- didn't require you to take five years of schooling to go get that CPA. But uh, I think now they officially made it required. But I looked at it as a nice little victory lap delaying uh, joining the workforce okay. for another year. Um, but <laughs> it. it was a master's in tax law. So okay. pretty much my life consisted of going to lectures for four hours a day, um, basically learning about you know different tax laws, and then going home and reading the tax code for about six hours. So it was an interesting year, and somehow, you know, somehow, some way, Bill, uh, Bill Wrestler made this interesting. <laughs> you know, he, he made us have a lot of fun. We'd have get-togethers, we'd have beer pong tournaments. Uh, he yes. was a local favorite at the bar called the Duchess, which, you know, as, as a fellow UW alum, 
Um, you probably didn't too, but uh, we would go there quite often. So it was a yeah. good year. I'd say one of the better years of my some of my five there, despite you know pretty much being in the library ninety percent of my life. <laughs> oh, super. I guess that makes me since you've referenced him this way and have explained him as such like an impactful guy. How do you feel like? And maybe this is a silly question, but how how would your experience have been different if you feel like you had a different professor? Yeah, I mean that's so hard to think because that's had such a big impact in my life. I don't think I would be intact. I don't think I'd be talking to you right now if it wasn't for him. You know, I think we, as I get on to where I'm at now, uh, yeah. obviously I was happy I went that route. But you know, hindsight's twenty twenty, and you know, I always wonder, you know, what other things could I have? You know, what 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 would have happened if I stuck with, let's say, engineering or something like that? So it's, it's always interesting to see, but. The impact, that's the type of impact that someone like Bill Ressler has. Um, you know, he would just, he made tax fun. He made it interesting. He made it, he gave some real world applications. And, uh, you know, I can't say I'd, I'd be in the same spot I am now or as successful uh, as I am now. Whatever measure you use, it was sure. Bill. Yeah, that's so awesome. So then you did your fifth year at UW. And then what was your first job out of school? Yeah, so I took my first job at Price Waterhouse Coopers. You know, I think it, it was kind of a natural uh, progression, I guess. You um, you you major in accounting as an undergrad. You do your fifth year master, and you that program is pretty good. And uh, yeah. I got recruited out to join PwC shortly thereafter. I decided to, uh, under Bill's uh, advice, I decided to take my offer in New York instead of staying in Seattle. Okay. Uh, so that you know, I that, that opened the door quite a bit. Yeah, I think uh, New York always interested me. I think, and Bill really made it sound appealing. <laughs> yeah, Bill makes everything sound appealing, including tax. <laughs> but he basically went out and said, look, if you can make it in New York, you can pretty much make it anywhere. The, the yeah. lifestyle, the fast-paced aspect of that city. Uh, and everything he said was absolutely true. It was, you know, possibly, you know, I was out there for about five years and that was fun five years. You know, it went by like, <laughs> went by so quickly. But uh, I learned so much about myself, you know, met so many cool people and just, you know, learned a lot in my professional career just from working out there. And I don't think I would have gotten and not, not, not saying anything bad about Seattle or San Francisco, but I'm glad I spent my you know, mid-20s in New York. Yeah. Well, that's pretty neat. And I think from the outside, I think the um, perception that I have of going into some of the big four accounting, it's uh, it, there's a lot of grinding that happens and then potentially some some burnout and the like. I wonder what the statistic is on the turnover rate, but from the outside, it seems like there's a one to two year time frame that people go in to the big four and then they turn over. So to last five years in New York, maybe <laughs> it doesn't sound like a long time. To me, it seems like a really long time. So what were the other, you have a sense of what the turnover rate was like in your office while you were there? Oh, absolutely. And they're, they're open about it too. I think, uh, all the big four, you know, so I, I'm going to talk about PwC because that's all I know, but I think it's probably pretty similar to the rest of the other three firms. But, you know, I think that the moment we got there, they were very open about saying, look, look to your left, look to your right. You know, there's a very good chance none of these people will be in the room in two years, yet alone sure. five, yet alone yes. until partnership, right? I think it's one of those it, things where, Twofold, right? I think the first thing that it comes to my mind when I think about it is that a lot of people go into accounting, uh, whether it's audit or tax or advisory, because it's a pretty good paying job at a school. Parents are kind of uh, ushering kids to get a good yep. job so they can 
get off their books without <laughs> spending their money. And I, I think, you know, with the amount of recruiting they do, it's an appealing option. And then when you couple that with the fact that you know, one day you can make partner and make pretty a pretty darn good salary and be set for life with a pension, um, it's appealing and definitely appeals to me at that time. So I think that's the first factor. And I think the second factor is that and there are a lot of hours. It's a very demanding job. Um, so I worked in my first two years, I worked in tax compliance or hedge funds, private equity firms. And, you know, in New York City, I think uh, the reputation of New York is they work even more than any other city. Um, okay. You know, what I found, found out to be pretty true. There were a lot of late nights working uh, in the office. So it was rewarding in a lot of aspects, but, you know, it sure. required a lot out of you. And, you yeah. know, quite frankly, by the time you hit, you know, your mid-20s or late-20s, uh, you start to get a little burnt out from it. <laughs> sure. And I guess that's not necessarily a bad thing, but it lays a, in a, a tremendous foundation of like hard work ethic and you see a lot, you probably get exposed to a ton of things. So I guess not to say that the uh, turnover is all that bad, but that just is what it is. And uh, at least you got to go right. through it. I think it's super, super. No, bad. absolutely. Yeah, I was going to say what's great about an organization, like a big book, a big four accounting firm, the fact that look, if you don't like what you're doing, there's something else out there. So but what happened for me is after my first two years, I just kind of over over the tax compliance and the, the, the busy season. So I switched to a consulting group for my last three years. And uh, that was a much better experience. I think it fit my personality a lot better. And, you know, there's there's a lot of other fields there. So it's not, you know, I, we, we talk about the long hours, how difficult the job is, but you get a lot out of it too. Um, you yeah, get what you put into it. So um, just wanted to mention that. Yeah. So I want to make sure to get to your current job and some of the other intricacies there, but super quick regarding consulting, tell me more about like what's, um, what type of projects were you working on? Well, who were the clients and what were you doing for them? Yeah, absolutely. So I joined a group called Tax Reporting and Strategy. Uh, so we were a, a consulting based group that was uh, actually, I would say unofficially, uh, we were the tech guys, the tech consultants and the tech group. So we, we were all tax specialists in one way or another. And what we would do is we would go to, uh, at least my industry I focused on, or hedge funds and private equity firms still, uh, we would go to these, these funds and help implement new technology to automate a lot of their processes. So on one day, you know, I could be uh, analyzing how, uh, how they're accounting for everything from a tax perspective. And then the next day, I could be working with some engineers based in you know, a different city to help you know, build them a technology that would help them as well as implement these technologies. So uh, that, was, that was sort of the focus there. Um, there are a few side projects uh, that are pretty interesting. Um, you know, like we call it uh, like tax transformation, where uh, large banks would want to transform their entire uh, tax department, whether through headcount or technology. Okay. Okay. Um, and we work through that as well. Hmm. Wow. Super good experience. So then five years there, and then now you moved on to bigger and better things. How did you learn about SecFi and what was that process like? I'm sure you, you, you could have gone anywhere. I'm sure like having five years at PwC on your resume is going to be super appealing to a bunch of people. And you knew a lot more about the industry and your expertise at that time. So why, why SecFi? Yeah, so I actually found out about SecFi through a, a close friend. He, he was talking to uh, the founders of SecFi, told me about this really interesting company, uh, and made the introduction. That's how I found out about him. 
Uh, I think in terms of my next move, I think as I was a, a PwC for five years, I had that entrepreneurial itch. Um, you know, I think I come from a family of entrepreneurs and going to one of the largest corporations kind of went against the grain. <laughs> so I always kind of had that itch and I kind of made the decision yeah. at some point that I was going to either move to a smaller company or start my own gig on the side and hopefully that materialized. Uh, but when SecFi reached out, it was kind of the perfect match. Uh, they were looking for someone who would be able to help out their clients uh, from a tax advisory standpoint because a lot of their clients needed uh, need a tax advisor, as well as it was a financial... I'll, I'll get into what SecFi does in a little bit, but a lot of financial products as well, which is uh, coincidentally what I specialized in at PwC, focusing on hedge funds, uh, hedge funds and private equity firms. And it was, you know, the startup that I was looking for, you know, it was a very small team. Um, hmm. You know, at the, at the time they reached out, it was less than, it was just about a year um, that they've been, that they've started. And I really, you know, saw it as like a perfect match, a perfect opportunity to step outside my comfort zone and try to try something new. That's awesome. <laughs> That's very fortuitous. So then, yeah, tell me I about know. like, you move, you moved back and started working for them. When did you actually start working there? Yeah, I started unofficially as a an advisor, um, helping him out with a, a few different projects back in the summer of last year, so the summer of 2018. And then uh, we officially decided I was going to start uh, full-time in October 2018. So wrapped up a few loose ends in New York uh, shortly thereafter in November, moved back to San Francisco um, yeah. and helped launch the, the San Francisco office uh, for SecFi. Okay. That's cool. And then I guess give a, I really want to get into some like case studies or just some examples of some of the things you learned because obviously the um, Silicon Valley and, you know, equity in a company, that's the the fun and exciting thing. And it feels like the carrot that's dangled in front of uh, hungry people that are graduating from college, but there's right. a or to, there's a lot more ins and outs. There's like a ton of risk. There's some maybe binary risk and all of that. So I just want you to unpack a little bit. Like, um, let's say for somebody that's currently in this world or thinking about getting into a private company and they're being offered equity, like what are some of the things that we need to be thinking about? Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, obviously uh, in the private company world, you know, equity compensation came, right? You know, the idea that, hey, I can move on from a bigger company. And you know, I'm only, I'm also speaking from experience. That's exactly what happened to me was, you know, you're working for a bigger company, like the pay will likely be bigger at a bigger company. Uh, but what the startup can offer is essentially equity compensation to make up for that difference in pay. And the hope there is that you get equity at stock now that may be worth virtually nothing. I help grow the company and eventually, uh, the stock is going to be worth uh, a good sizable chunk of cash uh, in the future when there's an IPO or uh, an acquisition, right? Uh, yeah. So I would say it, it's a lot of people. There's a lot of a, there's a big disconnect into understanding the valuation of your options even to start, right? I think when you're a brand new, yeah, I think when you're a brand new, um, if you you interview the job. Uh, you really like the company and someone says, okay, good. We're going to make your offer. Here's your salary and here's your equity comp. A lot of people read that incorrectly. I think when you look at you know the total value for equity, there's a lot of definitions like uh, the 409A value, the preferred price, um, and even you know, the difference between ISOs and NSOs. And it's really hard to put a dollar value on that, especially when it's not 
actually there's no uh, readily available market for it. You can't sell it, right? Yeah, uh, yeah. So I think there's a lot of there's an information gap out there about the equity compensation in general and the fact that most people that take jobs, especially the ones that are new, fresh out of school or maybe their second job, they don't really know what uh, what equity compensation entails and they don't even know. They just sign an offer sheet saying, okay, I've got, let's say, 50,000 options. Great. And kind of let it sit there <laughs> without even really thinking about it, without even really thinking about how this impacts their future earnings besides the yeah. fact that it may be worth something one day. Yeah. Yeah. And your website has some really cool like uh, mini case studies and I've been able to uh, learn from that. And so I guess what's, um, you know, let's consider this guy who's at, uh, you know, a startup and maybe he's got 50,000 shares that, that have been granted to them. Like when, when can they take action on them? I know there's a period of years before these things vest. So give me like an example of uh, what the common vesting schedule is. Yeah, I think the most common investing schedule you see in, in, in these tech companies and in Silicon Valley is uh, what's called a four-year investing period with a one-year cliff, right? Uh, the one-year cliff basically says nothing vests for an like, the vesting doesn't start for an entire year, uh, but once you hit that one-year mark, you have a full year's worth of vesting, so one-fourth of your options be vested a year. Um, reason being, I think that just protects the company a little bit. Um, if you join the company, it turn out to be a uh, terrible employee, they can you know they get fired without getting any options. It makes sense. So that's a typical vesting schedule. I think uh, typically what happens is employee gets options, best over four years, and they can start exercising them uh, depending on the terms within one year. Yeah. So let's say somebody does, um, you know, some number of shares have been vested, and then they're thinking about exercising. What are some of the things they need to consider at that juncture? Yeah, yeah. So this is a, obviously a very difficult question. I think this is where a lot of people struggle with, right? You know, what are my options actually worth? Do I want to put my cash in now? Am I going to get taxed? How much am I going to get taxed? Uh, and that's really where the information disconnect is, and it's really what SecFi is trying to help or help, help employees and startup companies with. But yeah, so some of the considerations is what kind of options you have, right? You can have uh, extended stock options or non-qualified stock options. Each have different tax implications. How do you feel about the company, right? You know, everyone just, everyone has this bias of the company they work for. Like they should, right? They should believe that their company is awesome and going to IPO at you know hundred billion dollars one day. But right, the reality right. is that doesn't really happen, right? <laughs> so you've got to have an honest conversation with yourself. Like realistically, is this company going to do well? And is this actually going to, you know, at the end of the day, you're not going to realize any value from your shares until the yeah. company either gets acquired, has an IPO, or sometimes they'll do a secondary listing, but you know, won't get into intricacies there, um, maybe for another day. But you really got to be honest with yourself. And how do you feel about your company? Uh, realistically, hmm. is it going <laughs> to be that? Super challenge. Are good? Oh, yeah, yeah absolutely. And well, I, guess well, I guess that's what... Another question I have though is though if somebody you know you're at a company for your private company for for uh, six years let's just say and during that time there's been no acquisition and no IPO and then you get a better offer offer somewhere else or decide screw this place I need something new what happens to all of your your vested shares and is there a difference in whether or not if you've exercised or not on some of those vested shares. No, absolutely. And I think that's typically where people come up to us, come up to us being tech five, 
uh, they have problems with they're looking to leave the company or they've already left the company and they have unexercised options, right? So if you exercise your options and you hold the actual shares, uh, those are your shares, right? As long as you're vested, they're your shares. You can hold on to them. They won't have a problem. The problem is, right, most people that get granted options hold on to them and they wait until they need yeah. to exercise them to actually exercise them. And by then, typically, you get very, very expensive exercise. So, you know, someone that's 23, 24 might have to pay you know, 100000 if not more, um, in not only exercise costs, but taxes associated with uh, with their shares. And that's a typical situation. So what they end up, what ends up happening is, you know, on paper, they have this great number of options and a great company and they feel good about it, but they may need to pay a large chunk of their net worth if they even have it. Uh, or most people don't have any liquidity to pay for that uh, in order to exercise their shares. Otherwise, typically what happens when you leave a company is that your shares will, ex- uh, your, your shares will expire. So you'll lose the value for, from it for 90 days. Yeah, um, got of course, you know, if the company allows, you can get an extension or they, the company may allow you to hold on to options for longer. But, you know, at the end of the day, it's a, it's a huge problem in Silicon Valley. And really why um, our founder, Voucher, actually started the company. He went through this himself, realized there's a major problem in Silicon Valley and sought out to help people in, in situations like that, uh, get, uh, help them exercise their share, their options okay. rather. Okay. Yeah. So tell me a little bit more though. So people come to you at this point, this inflection point, they're like, they're going to leave a company or they have left and uh, they... So these are people that have not yet exercised some of the shares. So they need to pony up cash, first of all, to buy, buy the stock and then have to, they've, they've got a tax liability at that time. So what do you, what are you guys right. doing for them? Yeah, so I think you're right. The majority of the cases of people that come up to us are people who have left or are looking to leave the company and need, to, need a large chunk of liquidity to exercise their taxes. But that said, we don't uh, just uh, just to be clear. We don't lend ourselves to people with options. So if you already exercised, and what you're looking for is some um, advance on your shares. For instance, I've got I've already bought my shares of uh, whatever company. I don't want to wait till the IPO. Um, I like some cash um, ahead of the IPO. We can do that as well. But yeah, I, I'd say you know typically what happens is a client will come to us say. Hey, I've got, you know, um, in extreme cases, three days to exercise. <laughs> I just left the company on 90 days to exercise my shares. <laughs> and, and I mean, we laugh about it now, but it happens a lot more than you would think. Wow. But boy, the employee will come up and say, my smile is about to expire. Uh, can you help me out with that? And what we'll do is they'll use our tools and calculate their, their total cost, which means their exercise cost, any taxes they'll pay. To find out exactly how much cash they need, and we'll work with them to try to find uh, the capital in order to exercise. So they reap the, really reap the benefits of their hard work, right? So your equity mm-hmm. compensation is, like you said, it's, it's another form of compensation for yeah. the time you put in building that company. So I think that's the that's the goal. Mm, that's super awesome. I my my own personal experience with this and why I I wanted to have you on the show to talk a little bit more about it. it slightly different, but um, still <laughs> this sense of urgency. In uh, two thousand and I think it was two thousand and sixteen in December, I had been um, working with a client that was super busy, and I could hardly get him in for a meeting. And then on like December first, two thousand sixteen, he calls me. He's like, "Hey, I just resigned," and I almost fell over because I was able to see on his screen 
he had NSOs or non-qualified stock options that he had not exercised. And I knew from that moment that the clock was ticking and he had no idea that I think he had, it was somewhere between 60 to 90 days to exercise on this and the fair market value right. of over $3 million. And so not only was right. he going to lose that, if he, even if he did exercise on it, his tax liability was going to be insane. And so we, we worked like around <laughs> the clock for two or three weeks, super, super frantic so that he could exercise some. For, fortunately, he had the year end for tax purposes on his side. So he exercised almost right. half like 2016 and another half in 2017. And I just like, I shook my head thinking like, you've spent 14 years at this company and we're exercising them after you leave. <laughs> but um, right. you know, that's just how life works. No. I think you hit the nail on the head, right? I think that's it's you know I talk to a lot of employees at these at these companies every single day, and it's quite amazing. I get more and more amazed every single day I do it. Is, is how many people haven't thought about their options, right? And thinking about their equity compensation because to be fair, it's kind of easy to put it on the back burner, right? Oh, uh, you know, equity comp, you know, all the all the I guess myths of equity compensation. Oh, it's a you know long term deal. You know, it's not worth anything yet. We worry about it later when you need to. Things like that. And quite frankly, that's probably the worst thing you can do. You know, doing nothing with your options is literally right. the worst thing you can do. You know, the the end result it may be that you you make a plan, you analyze everything, and then you decide you want to sit on them. That's okay, but at least you thought about it before deciding to do nothing, right? And you know, quite frankly, most most people that come up to us, very smart people, you know, building these amazing companies. Uh, but from a financial perspective, they just haven't given it much thought. And when you put things in perspective, right, John, I think you need to put things in perspective. Yeah. I mean, these options are sometimes worth, you know, 75%, 80%, 90% of one individual's entire net worth. Right. And, you know, situations like you just described happen all the time. Yeah, so that's really, that's yeah, what we're hoping to do at SecFi now. It's like, you know, obviously we have a great product to help people out in that situation yeah. where they are stuck. But cool. how can we help them from an earlier stage, right? How can we reach this? How can we help them plan and make mm -hmm. sure they make better financial decisions from the onset um, yes. so they take home later on down the road? Dude, you're speaking my language as a CFP. I love it. I'm eating it <laughs> up. Well, we talked about a ton. I really appreciate you going through this. Before we wrap things up, are there other things in regards to your current work or SecFi that we haven't covered that you want to be able to tell people? Um, you know, just, uh, you know, I guess just my, my plea out to anyone that's listening is plan. Plan ahead of time. Uh, talk to tax advisors. Talk to wealth, uh, wealth planners like John. And those people, I think when you really realize it is, they're taking home more at the end of the day, right? I think uh, you're in a great financial position having options. You know, most people don't get options. And if you're fortunate enough to have options, it's great. But the more you plan now, the more you'll take home later on down the road. And little things like having one or two meetings a year with a financial advisor or a tax accountant or a tax lawyer uh, and really making a plan of attack for your options. It can be, you know, the, the returns and the ultimate take home can be you know, significant, you know, when time comes for your company to IPO or, or when your company gets acquired. So uh, I guess that's my biggest yeah. takeaway. My, uh, you know, the last thing I want to mention, you know, make sure you plan, reach out to us, reach out to John, 
Um, yeah. Just plan for your options and we're going to help you take home more. I love it. It's super good. Thanks for coming on. I hope to have you on again, VJ. I really appreciate your time. Absolutely. Thanks, John. A lot of fun. Thanks for tuning in to The John Chapman Show. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or Spotify. We encourage your questions, comments, and feedback. For additional information, check out thejohnchapmanshow.com or look for John on LinkedIn and Twitter. See you next week.